Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firm-wide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined this week by Christine Kim, Saul Kadir, and Charles Yu from Galaxy Digital Research. Hey, everyone. Hello. Good morning. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Bimnet Abibi, as we are each week to talk markets. Um, And this week, we're going to talk about Luna and UST. Uh, We're going to talk about Instagram adding NFT integration. And we're going to talk about Lido, the liquid staking protocol for Ethereum's beacon chain. Um, But first, Bimnet, let's turn to you. It looks like everything in markets is down uh, this week. It's been rough since the FOMC, uh, since Wednesday of last week when we had a little bit of a rally after the FOMC, but it's been now where I guess we're on the fifth down day here. And um, tell us what's happening and what are you seeing out there? Um, Yeah. Um, So what we've been seeing this year um, is the market sort of coming to grips with the state of inflation and the Fed's response function to inflation. And so last week, you know, the Fed told you that they're going to take aggressive measures to prevent inflation by, by raising rates, by running off their balance sheet. And today you got data that, you know, is, is going to support pretty aggressive uh, tightening of, of financial conditions. Today we had C- CPI come in at 8.3% versus expectations of, you know, 8.1. So you're still, you know, at inflation levels that you haven't seen for 40 to, to 50 years. Um, and they're continuing to, to come in above expectations. And so, you know, while inflation may have dipped, you know, um, due to, to, to certain base effects, it's pretty clear that inflation is, is pretty broad based. You know, you're seeing massive pickup in prices from everything from, from housing to airfares to dining out. Um, and, and that it's, it's likely g- going to be fairly persistent. And so the market is interpreting that as meaning you know, the Fed's going to have a pretty aggressive response to this. And so, you know, odds are stocks are going to sell off, right? And inflation is important for a number of reasons. But, you know, I want to highlight just just one simple one, uh, which is just margin compression, right? When you are a a company and you have to pass through, you know, increases in in labor costs and increases in in the cost of goods to end consumers, um, it is most likely going to lead to margin compression. You cannot pass on 40% increase um, in prices to, to consumers. And so that's what you're, you're really seeing in, in a lot of, uh, of U.S. equities. In addition, um, the era of free money is, is over um, and valuations matter. And so things like expensive software companies, um, stuff that has traded at insanely high valuations, is now coming to is now starting to, to normalize, and to put some some numbers behind it, uh, I, I mean th- these moves have been dramatic to say the least. But since last Wednesday's podcast, um, high to low, the, the Nasdaq has moved lower by eleven percent, and it's still going. Um, and you've had technical breaks uh, on the S and P. You're, you're through four thousand. Um, and you've had, you know, big weekly breaks like last last Friday's, you know, close w- w- was pretty indicative that, that you know, you were going to get some follow through and just high level. Pretty much every big technical level this year that, that has gotten taken out on currencies, bonds, equities um, has seen pretty material follow through. And so, you know, this time is, is no different. Um, you know what we you know, we, we think that that stocks likely continue to, to sort of move lower as the street sort of 
decreases, you know, earnings forecast for, 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 for most companies. And, you know, I think that's going to be a, a headwind for crypto. What do you think? Um, I've been thinking about this a lot and I, and this isn't right, really a novel opinion, but you know, you've got the fastest and largest money printing in history in in spring of 2020, yeah. you've got now some of the most aggressive tightening, um, that we've ever seen. Absolutely. I keep calling this a whipsaw monetary policy, you know, is, are we down or is this just really a reversion to the mean? Like we're just opining here. Like what, what if we hadn't injected all that liquidity? I know everyone was terrified. We had lockdowns, but my view is like, you know, the, the vaccines were going to come, the reopening would have happened. People were going to eventually get or not get COVID one way or another. Like did, like, is that a prudent policy? It seems near universally accepted that it was a good thing to print all that money. Um, in, in response to COVID, but now taking that, that money away. Right. And it feels like a lot of pain and it's like, it, you know, is this, is this really just a mean reversion? Was the last two years of run up basically fake? Um, so there's a lot to unpack in that question <laughs> and, and it's a great one. Um, and so, you know, I just want to remind you of, of sort of what the world looked like in the spring of, of, of 2020 when, when COVID was happening, you had 20 million, uh, increase in, in unemployment. Right. You know, people could not work from they needed, you know, unemployment benefits. They needed stimulus checks, et cetera. And you were living in an era where you had, you know, somewhat tight financial conditions and, you know, interest rates were positive, et cetera. But inflation never really got out of hand. You were in a period where for, you know, I want to say at least five, six years, the Fed was consistently forecasting inflation that was higher than, than like where it realized we were consistently below 2% inflation and, and the fed was actually in the process of, you know, hiking rates. And so never, you know, did, you know, these central bankers think that you'd be printing eight, 8%, eight and a half percent on inflation when they started to, to inject all the liquidity in the market. And then the other thing to keep in mind, um, the, the liquidity that the, the U S and the fed injected not only helped domestic policy, but, but also foreign policy. Really, um, there was a, a massive scarcity of dollars. Um, and if, if the U.S. didn't step in in the way that it did, it would have harmed, you know, the, the rest of the world much more. Um, and so, you know, with that, you know, you know, I think the most important thing to, to focus on, though, is, you know, forecasting is imperfect. People have been bad at predicting inflation for decades. Nobody is good at it, whether it's to the upside or, or to the downside. I don't care if you have a gazillion PhDs, right? It's, it's, there's too many variables. And so with the information that, that people had back then, um, they did their best. And, and now, you know, they're, they're a little bit slow to, to react. And, and that's the main issue. But to your, you know, to your point, is this just mean reversion? And yes, it is. There's been a lot of excess wealth that, that's been created, a lot of froth in the market that, that needs to sort of get taken away. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a chart guy. And so high level, the, the, the uptrend in U.S. stocks that's gone on for, you know, the better part of you know, half a century is still in place. Right. Your average you know, baby boomer that's retiring is still sitting on tremendous compounded gains over time. And so, yes, this, this is mean reversion, but it's different in the sense that it could be mean reversion um, in a stagflation scenario where you never really get out of this inflation because the inflation genie has popped, right? 
everybody's going to want to buy goods aggressively because you think they're going to go up 10% next week. Right. And, and it starts, you know, to spiral, like people start leaving their jobs because, you know, the, the, you know, they have a family of four and like everything costs 15% more. And so if you hate your job, like you're still probably, I mean, if you like your job, you're still probably going to move on if, if you're not getting a raise to, to keep up with that stuff. So the question is, is that inflation genie out the bottle? Um, and, and it's tricky because you have things like the Ukraine crisis, the China slowdown, all of these things that have historically, you know, been very tough to sort of forecast happening. Um, so it's a, it's a very complicated um, a- equation right now. It is tricky, and um, but it's incredible how important monetary policy is in macro and um, and in general, just investing in general these days. I don't think that that's the role that the Fed wants to be playing, but it is the one they find themselves in, right? Absolutely. Okay, this is great, Bimnet. Thank you so much, as always. Okay, next we're going to talk about Luna and UST. That's Terra USD, the stablecoin in the Luna ecosystem. UST lost its peg over the weekend, and um, despite some efforts to um, support it, it fell at one point as far, I think, in like the 20 cent range when it's supposed to be a dollar. As a consequence, confidence in the Luna ecosystems declined significantly. So the Luna token itself, which is the native digital asset for the Terra blockchain itself, um, and which is involved in the mint and burn process for UST, also down huge. I mean, I think when I looked, this, it, we're recording this on Wednesday, um, it was trading under a dollar from, and that's down from its all-time high of over $110. So down massive losses uh, in Luna as well. Uh, we've got Charles Yu here uh, from the research team at Galaxy to talk to us about it. You've been following Luna for a while, Chuck. First, maybe just tell us briefly about Luna um, and, and and the Terra blockchain and then and then let's talk about UST. Yeah, so a high level, Terra is a Tendermint-based proof-of-stake blockchain built on the Cosmos SDK. Um, and its governance token, Luna, is used to absorb some of the short-term liquidity and it's tied to, to UST. Um, so through its market module, um, users can mint and burn Luna or UST always at a one to at a dollar to one ratio. Um, which really incentivizes arbitragers to step in and mint and burn Luna for UST whenever it deviates from its peg. Um, so it's not explicitly collateralized, but uh, UST uh, Luna is just used to to absorb some of the short-term volatility. So when you create UST, you burn Luna, correct? Correct. So over the last, I mean, year and a half, I mean, I'm looking at the beginning of 2021, there was looks like less than a billion circulating in of UST. Today, it's over 18 billion. So that has corresponded that that cre- those creations of UST with the destruction of Luna supply. Correct. And then but then the reverse happens when you um, want to redeem Terra, um, you mint new Luna tokens. And so I think this, you wrote about this in our newsletter a couple of weeks ago, this, this mechanism in general can work really well when asset prices are stable or, or rising. But in the case of a, a large you know, move to redeem UST, that also puts significant pressure on Luna because it causes Luna's supply to increase. Um, and that that's sort of one of the ways the death spiral, quote unquote, that's been talked a lot about with algorithmic stablecoins specifically can manifest. So 
I think if we put it in context too, right, you've got you've got several types of stable coins. I typically think of USDC, USDT as uh, tokens that are IOUs to an off-chain issuer, right? A centralized off-chain issuer. And those issuers, be it Circle or Tether, they hold um, collateral um, in order to, upon which they issue these IOUs, right? And it could be all dollars. It could be some combination of, of, of securities and dollars and cryptos, right? That's, that's sort of not... Um, there are variations in how these various uh, centralized stablecoins collateralize themselves. Then you've got debt-based stablecoins like MakerDAO and DAI, which are typically over-collateralized with crypto assets. Um, although it's worth noting, MakerDAI has a lot of USDC in there as collateral as well. Um, and, and and interestingly, right, Maker came under, uh, had a lot of trouble on March 12th, 2020, not so much because of Maker's design, uh, but more because of congestion in the Ethereum network that day. Uh, people weren't able to get in and top up their their margin positions, and Oracle messages weren't properly getting on-chain to MakerDAO, um, causing uh, a lot of cascading liquidations there. But this, this what we've seen over the last couple of days is a bit different, right? I mean, this is this stablecoin UST is really hard to there's not nearly as much backing it in this in like a like a debt-based stable coin this is when we say algorithmic we sort of really mean programmatic right and and while there is a mechanism here to create and redeem luna it's not like a bunch a pile of luna is sitting in a vault right and and even if it were that's that's only one asset so this dynamic um but why don't you run us through chuck like let to the best of our knowledge what what actually happened to start this this um, decline and in, in depegging of UST, um, and then we'll take it from there. Sure, yeah. Um, so over the weekend, um, Anchor, which is Terra's most popular uh, savings and lending protocol, um, saw major outflows and UST deposits, which was largely started by um, a single wallet address on Saturday. Um, and after withdrawing a large amount of UST on Anchor, um, this entity then bridged it to Ethereum and swapped it for other stables on Curve which is uh, one of the main UST liquidity sources on Ethereum. And so this led to a big supply imbalance with UST making up uh, most of the liquidity pool in there and leaving less um, quote unquote exit liquidity for others to, to swap their UST to. You know, this was seemingly a deliberate and coordinated attack on UST. You know, prior to this, uh, there was a large entity who borrowed $3 billion of Bitcoin. Um, and sold their position to trigger some market panic. And, you know, this was enough to, to cause the initial depegging, which on Saturday was just at 98 cents on the dollar across several exchanges. But um, really, this created this negative feedback loop as market conditions were already bad. Um, price of Luna was rapidly falling, and it really just convinced a lot of others to exit their UST positions. Okay, so this all started happening um, during over the weekend, and there was this was crypto markets were getting battered, and this this followed you know down equity days on Thursday and Friday of last week, and then you know Monday we know um, was also a, a pretty red day. So that that negative sentiment in markets again, even outside crypto, um, persisted throughout the weekend. But yet crypto is the only thing you could trade. Um, so anyway, Chuck, um, ha, what did the the Luna Foundation guard and and the Terra team or whomever what did they do? to try to mitigate and stem the, the, you know, the pain coming from this DPEG over the weekend. Yeah. So I guess when they saw some of these uh, supply imbalances in the liquidity pools on um, the external exchanges, um, and I say external meaning um, 
you know, Curve, potentially Uniswap, or or even Binance. Uh, these are basically just exchanges that are um, off off of Terra, where the on-chain market module isn't available. So they help contribute liquidity into some of these pools to to rebalance things. But they found that after each capital injection, um, you know, the exits were pretty persistent. Um, the peg hadn't been restored, and you know, it really showed no signs of slowing. Um, so to give you an idea, anchor deposits um, were over, I think, 14 billion prior to the weekend, and we were seeing outflows of several billion dollars over the past couple of days, and it now stands at three billion dollars. So that's over 10 billion dollars of outflows. Wow. So a lot of demand to get out of UST. Um, and then, so the Luna Foundation Guard, they had raised a bunch of capital and held it in Bitcoin, right? We've talked about this on the podcast. They had bought a lot of Bitcoin um, with the idea that it would add to the sort of collateralization defense mechanism for protecting the UST peg. It was intended, my recollection, that it would be a redemption option if you didn't want to mint luna you could actually take redemption in bitcoin at a slight haircut right but actually over the weekend and maybe this was sunday night if i'm recalling sunday and monday we started to see luna foundation guards sending that bitcoin um it looks like to an exchange um in an in some kind of effort either either they were going to provide it to market makers maybe through through an exchange um or even just buying ust with it aka selling the bitcoin for ust to help defend that peg that also didn't work, right? Yeah, it was not successful. Um, kind of viewed the uh, the use of the Bitcoin reserves as a secondary option after these initial capital injections weren't effective in restoring the peg. Um, so the LFG Council actually voted to to loan out 1.5 billion dollars to to OTC trading desks and market makers to to actively manage you know, their reserves, but they were forced to sell some of it in defense of the peg, which was basically what the attacking entity had planned for their short position. Now, we don't know, we don't know a lot about this attacking entity, but we do know that those initial withdrawals from Anchor went to one wallet, right? We do know there's a lot of speculation in the market that this was a very coordinated um, attack and trade around this, um, but we don't know who that was, if there even was someone. But there's tons of rumors online. Yeah, this 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 was not a gradual loss of confidence in UST, right? This was sparked by that that we can see we can see that on chain. Yeah, what we do know is that one single wallet address had. Uh quickly accumulated up, up to a billion dollars of UST deposits on Anchor um, and then withdrew them immediately. And then we also saw the imbalancing of the curve pool, which further, um, you know, shortly thereafter, which, you know, I don't know about tracking coins as they move through bridges. That's probably pretty difficult, but very, very likely the same entity. Okay. And then so... You know, the story um, is still developing, but, you know, I I mentioned this confidence in Luna is down significantly in general. I mean, the coin itself is down a lot. And um, we also have, I think, confidence in Algo Stables is down a lot. And we'll talk about that in a sec. What's up, Christine? Love to have you chime in here. Yeah. um, I guess, what do we think about how what this means to use Bitcoin as pristine collateral? Um, the fact that Luna Foundation Guard did try and use its massive reserves of Bitcoin to restabilize the price, does it make us doubt in in the ability of of Bitcoin to act as 
that idea of of reserve of it being like a digital gold reserve no definitely not um i think the last thing that people have doubt about in this situation is bitcoin um you have i mean the issue here i mean bitcoin's pristine collateral because it's highly auditable highly secure global liquid right that the reason it wasn't able to defend the peg has nothing to do with bitcoin and and everything to do with the lack of confidence in in terra and just the simple lack of demand to buy and hold terra right i mean every one of those those attempts to recover if you look at the 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 chart on on ust right significant uh rush to exit ust and um they they have a lot of bitcoin but, but apparently not enough to to just uh to defend that low level of confidence i think the story where it gets um and we don't to be clear we don't know how much bitcoin has actually been sold to defend this peg i think you know we can see some bitcoin moving into where we think is a centralized exchange which by the way market makers are on many exchanges so even though it maybe lands at one it can sort of then be on the market makers balance sheet and be traded elsewhere um, but centralized exchanges are kind of a black hole when it comes to on-chain uh, forensics because um, once assets land there, typically what happens happens off chain, right on their order books or whatever else. So it gets very difficult. Um, I think, I think the, one of the big, big takeaways here is algorithmic stable coins. Can they ever work? And I, I've been in general, a pretty big critic of these. Um, now I don't even know if it's fair to actually say that Terra, it was an algorithmic stable coin. I mean, in the end it was, you know, backed by Bitcoin, it was, um, it has had, you know, sort of, um, active defenders on its side that, you know, basically undertook open market operations to try to defend the peg. So that's not purely algorithmic, not like something like Ampleforth was or, um, or like what basis wanted to be. Um, but this does feel like the sort of Holy grail, um, in sort of stable money that not only in this crypto era, but you know, for thousands of years, people would want to engineer something that could just algorithmically, aka magically, maintain its value. Um, and you know, I we've never found that, and you know, the Holy Grail itself was never found, as far as I'm aware. Um, so it might end up still being that thing people strive for. It did sound like Do Quan, who founded Terra, ultimately kind of agreed that this algorithmic stablecoin stuff won't work and that UST, if it survives, will transition over to a collateral, a collateralized stablecoin. Chuck, curious to know what how you interpreted that statement from Do Kwan on Twitter when he said that looking ahead to, to UST's future roadmap, um, that the team would be looking into collateralized options. Yeah. First of all, I think... One thing I just want to point out, but I think uh, an important distinction to make here is um, just around the term decentralized. Mm -hmm. The whole reason that Terra really blew up like over the past couple of months was because, you know, we were seeing um, the protests in Canada with the, the Freedom Convoy with the truckers and, and now this uh, Ukraine war. You know, people need a form of seizure proof, uh, censorship resistant currency. So decentralized in that sense that it it cannot actually be seized. Um, and that's different than, you know, actively managing, you know, the role of uh, your coin in, in open market operations or, or things like that, which are some of the, the typical criticisms that I see being thrown against Terra. 
Now, with that being said, um, I think the main problem that has really been illustrated here in, in this incident is uh, how Terra is actually backed by by faith in the coin and by demand in Luna. Um, but this kind of falls along the same lines of, of uh, actually fiat backed stable coins. Um, so your USDT, Tether, um, all it really takes is, you know, one FUD campaign or or anyone to, to spark a rumor, um, you know, spark concerns in, in um, token holders to, to really sell off the tokens. And, you know, Tether will never know like what their reserves actually are, whether or not they can immediately meet all the redemptions of its holders. Um, but still, like even today, we saw Tether trading off of its peg by, by a couple basis points um, just on some, some news like that. So, yeah, actually, I think all the stable coins basically today were trading slightly below their peg. None of them, obviously, at the level of UST, but um, I think confidence um, is kind of shaken. Yeah, so two quick comments here uh, to Chuck's point about the lack of demand for Terra. I think we've seen the writing on the wall for this for a while now. If you look at DeFi Llama, for instance, TVL, uh, Terra's anchor dominance which it just measures like the top protocol, how much TVL is affiliated with it. For Terra, it was 70% for Anchor. And if you look at the other two main competitors, Avalanche, uh, it's only around 16% for Aave. And then Solana is about 12% for Solend, uh, at least today. So what that shows you is that they're incredibly, the demand for the coin is incredibly tied to just one protocol. So if that domino falls, it could have massive massive implications to a degree that's not necessarily true for other competing l1s um and, and the other small point i'll make with regards to algorithmic stable coins i think the dream isn't dead i just think this whole industry needs to mature by a couple orders of magnitude because um, at the end, end of the day it didn't really take that much capital to to cause this domino to fall you know a billion dollars in the ballpark of that uh, but if this industry starts increasing by a factor of 10 or 100, um, that becomes a lot harder. So just two quick comments there that I thought. Yeah, good good comments, Saul. Um, okay, and before we wrap up, Luna, let's talk about regulation and regulatory tension. Um, obviously, the U.S. government and, and other entities have been um, really focused on stable coins, partly because they're, they're concerned about um, some of the, the size of the reserves that back them and, and, in theory, what kind of collateral damage might be caused by um, particularly something like Tether having to sell uh, reserves to meet redemption demand. Um, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen spoke about Terra uh, and this before Congress yesterday on Tuesday. Let's roll that clip. I would note that there was a report just this morning um, in the Wall Street Journal that a stable coin known as Te Terra USD um, experienced a run and had declined in value. And, um, well, so it, I, I think that simply illustrates that this is a rapidly growing uh, product and um, that there, there are risks to financial stability and we need a framework that's, that's appropriate. So I, it does seem like um, there will be additional uh, scrutiny um, even just from from this UST incident, um, and and you know I don't know, it's really not clear at all yet where policy makers land on how uh, and which and when to regulate stablecoins. But 
um, definitely one of the second order effects of, of this fallout is going to be, um, you know, it's certainly more fodder for, for regulators that are concerned about this part of the space. And one other thing to watch out in terms of, of regulatory attention is how regulation around cryptocurrencies in Korea might change as well with the new election of a uh, South Korean president who ran on a platform where he was much more pro-crypto than the former president. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see whether or not his stance changes or shifts somehow because of this incident. Right, because Tara is based in South Korea, right, and, and was big in the ecosystem there. Yeah. Okay, well, this is a developing story, so probably more to come on it. But uh, thanks, Chuck, for, for helping us unpack some of it. And um, we'll, you know, read our newsletter, uh, at, which is out uh, Friday today as you're listening to this. Um, we'll have more content on this there. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Instagram. This is a little lighter fare, I think. But Instagram, you know, the uh, property owned by Meta, you know, formerly known Facebook, the social media application, um, they are going to add integration for NFTs directly into their platform. And soon, uh, Saul, can you uh, give us the rundown on this? Yeah, absolutely. So this was teased by Zuckerberg himself at SXSW a few weeks ago. And then on Monday, Adam Masseri, who heads Instagram, announced that the platform will be testing NFTs with select creators. As of right now, it's happening. Um, and right off the gate, it'll support Ethereum and Polygon when this launches for the public. Eventually, Solana and the Flow blockchain will be supported as well. In terms of wallets, it's going to support Rainbow, MetaMask, Trust Wallet, uh, at launch, and then Coinbase, uh, Dapper, and Phantom wallets will eventually be supported. And the idea here is you as a user can share NFTs you either purchased or created in your main Instagram feed, in stories, or in messages, which is an interesting departure from Twitter, which focuses entirely on displaying your NFTs through PFPs, profile pictures. Uh, so different use case here. And the quote that Adam said, which was also interesting, was, he acknowledges upfront that NFTs and blockchain technologies are all about distributing trust and power, and Instagram is fundamentally centralized, and there's a tension there. And so there is a recognition on his part that they need to create this product in such a way um, that kind of balances both of these halves. And I think the long-term vision with this, uh, in terms of Meta's play here, is that this type of feature set will make its way over to Meta's suite of products, so think the VR stuff maybe even Facebook and WhatsApp. And the idea is that as Meta builds out the metaverse, um, NFTs will be kind of a key uh, step towards iterating towards that future. Great. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's pretty, this would be probably the most prime time or, or mainstream integration with NFTs. Would you, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think the way I describe it is NFTs, at least from Meta's point of view, uh, NFTs are the gateway drug to the metaverse which is why they're so focused on them. Um, it's also interesting, Coinbase kind of showed some good foresight here in terms of like integrating social features with NFTs uh, when they launched their marketplace, which hasn't done terribly well and probably is over-engineered at this point. And now they're going to compete with Instagram that has the user base and can kind of bolt on the NFT functionality. This has always been my thesis with NFTs and how it will play out with Web2 is that it's much easier to just take an existing user base of 100 million people and integrate crypto versus build a crypto platform and then try to onboard 100 million people uh, into your mysterious crypto product, which is you know, interesting to see that play out. And Saul, what do you make of the multitude of blockchains that 
you know, Facebook has chosen for this release. Curious to know, it, to me, it sounds like they're trying to put their eggs in multiple baskets in case, you know, one scalability solution fails. Um, but I think their selection of some of these still points towards what they think is going to win out in the end. Yeah, I actually am very fascinated by this. Um, and to reiterate, it's ETH Polygon, which is a side chain for, of Ethereum, and then Solana, which is a different layer one blockchain, and Flow, which I guess would qualify as a layer one. Uh, it's kind of a weird architecture there. In terms of, you know, I think this signals something that is correct. Like no one knows who's going to win out, especially with NFTs. What the the change they selected, particularly ETH. Uh, Polygon, which is the ticker's Matic, and Solana. Those three in my eyes have always been like the the leaders in NFTs as far as like truly decentralized blockchains go. Flow has been this kind of weird pseudo-centralized, decentralized blockchain that has the partnerships, right? They integrated with the NBA, the NFL, the UFC, uh, and only recently have they started opening up their APIs a bit more. They have a very rigorous onboarding process. I'm not even sure you can buy the token in the US. Um, so I think Facebook chose pretty well, but it's, it's obviously very measured. They haven't committed to one over the other. One name that was like excluded from the list that I thought would be on there would be uh, Tezos. Yeah. So I think it is a, a lot more of a, a retail chain um, than some of the other ones listed. Yeah, I don't know. I At least as far as I can see in, in terms of the data, Solana for sure is like, in my opinion, the clear number two for that's permissionless blockchain that has a user base. I think Polygon is just kind of an easy integration and they, they're they strong in the business development side. Flow, it's like almost like you're taking bets on different aspects of the strengths of these chains. Flow's got the partnerships with AAA leagues. Uh, Solana has the numbers. Polygon's kind of like the easiest to integrate. Uh, and so, yeah, it kind of does make sense why Tezos would fall out because they're not probably the best at any of those particular things compared to those guys. So how do we think this gets used a lot? I mean, are we going to see, is it going to be just bored ape people posting their ape and having it verified? Or what's the really cool idea here that they're betting on? This is actually what I forgot to mention. I kind of tease it because Twitter has been all about PFPs. So your bored apes, the world, your punks. This is where I think demand for actual art NFTs and not just like visual art, but think music, think even um, like taking pictures, like photography. This is where those use cases are going to be incredibly powerful. And we're going to start to see demand for those types of NFTs because they're being shared in their native form where people already interact with them. They're going to get hundreds of thousands of likes already. Why not monetize that through an NFT? Now, how that looks like is a different question, and we're not really sure how that plays out uh, since it's an app on an Apple product. But that is incredibly interesting. They're departing completely away from PFPs because that's not even a feature of Instagram. You can barely see your profile picture. They're not even saying that's going to be a supported feature. So I think it'll drive demand for the other NFT use cases outside of PFBs. Fascinating. Um, okay, uh, really, we're going to have to watch because this is like like we said, the, the most mainstream sort of integration for NFT platform uh, or NFTs in a platform that we've seen yet. And that could, uh, that could get very interesting quickly. So um, thanks for the background, Saul. Let's move on. Let's talk about Lido, the liquid staking protocol for Ethereum's beacon chain, which um, is a proof of stake uh, chain that will merge with the existing uh, Ethereum blockchain in the event called the merge eventually, and that will facilitate the proof, the the transition to proof of stake. So Lido, um, this liquid staking protocol, it also issues the most liquid uh, staked ETH token. 
has, uh, I, I guess, almost 33% of all ETH uh, staked on the Beacon Chain today. Christine, you're here to explain this to us. Uh, what is this? What does this mean? Yeah, I mean, it's quite concerning for the network, I think, but it's not something developers and users in the ecosystem hadn't already seen coming for quite a while now. Um, to put that 33% number into perspective, 10% of Ethereum supply is currently locked in the Ethereum uh, beacon chain, which is Ethereum's, like you said, proof of stake blockchain. And over this past year, with a lot more active development happening for the merge, with a lot with greater confidence that the merge is going to happen before the end of this year, with more anticipation of validator rewards on the beacon chain rising significantly because of the merge, all of these factors have push users and and more players to become involved and interested in this idea of staking their ETH. And so for so year to date, um, we've seen the amount of staked ETH uh, grow by 40%. And just this past month, it's 10%. Um, and it hasn't been too surprising. And the reason why I say it hasn't been too surprising that a lot of this value has flowed into Lido instead of other self-service staking providers or even other staking as a, as a service platforms is because Number one, I mean, you do need to have like a certain amount of technical know-how to be able to run your own validator. So as much as devs encourage people to run their own validator sets instead of using a staking as a service platform, it does make sense that there, a large amount of this interest hasn't gone to self-service staking. That idea that there are easy one-click options where people can just stake their ETH, it makes sense that a lot of that, that interest has flowed into places like Lido, but also exchanges. So the second and the third largest depositors into the Beacon chain after Lido are Coinbase and Kraken. And so if users already have, are holding their ETH on exchanges, especially, you know, long-term hodlers, it is a no-brainer to kind of, you know, easily be able to stake it um, on that exchange, especially if you're feeling more confident that Ethereum is going to transition over to proof of stake. There's an argument to be made that for proof of stake platforms, if you just hold your ETH or hold your asset rather than stake it, you're going to get devalued over time, etc. Um, but I guess the other interesting part of this is why Lido over other exchanges? Why is Lido kind of like the big winner here? Um, and I really think it comes down to the liquid ETH staking derivative token that Lido's got. Um, it's kind of like a chicken and an egg problem here. Um, for a staking derivative token to be useful and for users to want it, it has to be extremely liquid. There has to be a market for it. It has to be widely traded in the DeFi ecosystem. But for you to get there, you need to have the users that want that token. Um, and that's where I think Lido had the first mover advantage. It launched a few weeks after the Beacon Chain first went live back in December 2020. And the reason why it was able to launch so fast was because Lido, unlike some other decentralized protocols like Rocket Pool, basically compromised parts of its protocol to launch faster and, and kept parts of its service centralized. And because of that, Lido was able to capture a lot of that early demand for liquid staking token for a liquid derivative staking token when not many others existed at all and it has since built out that moat for Steph. And so data-wise, Lido currently has 93% of the liquid staking market in its hands. Um, so I, I, I think for me, I think 
you know, seeing this influx of users this year, I mean, um, it's it does make sense that it, a lot of it would go to, go to Lido. And and now that it's hit the 33% mark, there's been quite a lot of commentary on Twitter. Lead ETH2Dev Danny Ryan tweeted on Tuesday that Lido passing one-third is a centralization attack on proof of stake, which I thought was an extremely strongly worded message. Um, and of course, it's, you know, it's not great that one protocol, you know, holds all this much ETH. Um, but the other alternatives, the second and the third, you know, lead staking deposits are from centralized exchanges. And the reason why Lido was created was so that, you know, all the stake ETH doesn't flow to centralized exchanges. It flows to a business whose model is more aligned with that of, you know, the overall health of the ecosystem. And to that end, I think Lido is trying to innovate, trying to improve. Um, I think the kind of risks that Danny Ryan is pointing out when it comes to smart contract risks comes to, you know, Lido validator suddenly, um, you know, getting slashed, et cetera. All of that is, it's a risk, but I don't think that it's like a high risk because of the way that Lido is set up and because of the way that um, Lido incentives are aligned with that of the networks, at least for now. Um, I think there is a bigger conversation though around the, the security impact of liquid stake ETH derivatives in general to the Ethereum network that we can go into if we want, but um, I'm going to pause there. <laughs> no, that was a phenomenal overview. Um, I think you hit pretty much all of my questions. I guess what I'm hearing is that, you know, it, it it's more aligned with the ethos Lido than say just a, any exchange could be, but it's still problematic. Um, is this sort of a, an existential risk for proof of stake. I mean, just, you know, the, this is what critics have been saying for years was that staking um, is a centralizing force by definition. Capital finds capital, right? The, the, and it looks like that's happening here again, um, more aligned or not, even if it continues to grow um, and they put in other things, become more decentralized, Lido itself, et cetera. You're actually still though taking the, the incentives and mechanisms built into the proof of stake design and essentially that, that try to protect the network. And then you're taking them off chain and putting them in another box, kind of like the way Flashbots um, has, right? You're putting them in the Lido box and we're saying, okay, well, Lido's got a lot of stake, but we're going to decentralize it more. So then it won't be as bad, but like, that's what the proof of stake protocol itself was supposed to be doing. We're now moving that into another box kind of like with flashbots like we're using it to mitigate or perform mev but now we have to worry about censorship risk inside flashbots right i mean isn't that part of the sort of inherent issue here i mean decentralization i think is a spectrum and even in the beginning of of ethereum's proof of work uh, consensus mechanism launch i don't think the network was as decentralized as it is today. And so many critics of Ethereum's proof of stake network said immediately, you know, when the beacon chain launch, it's just going to go to centralized exchanges. I think the existence of Lido shows that there is a middle ground. There is a process towards decentralizing proof of stake that can work. And I think the fact that 33% of stake has gone to Lido shows that it's possible. I mean, there's still, of course, a lot of promises to be 
fulfilled. Um, but I think it's it's uh, a testament to the the ability of a proof of stake network to become decentralized over time. That Lido is leading the the pack over other uh, centralized exchanges. I had a question for you, Christine. Um, one of the unique things about Ethereum proof of stake is that, and a lot of people talk about this, is that they don't have delegation built into the protocol, whereas other proof of stake chains like Solana and Avalanche do. And so what this means, you know, at a very simple level is like, if I go in my phantom wallet on Solana, I can type in the name of a validator I know and stake all of my Solana in one click to someone else very easily. And ETH doesn't have this functionality, which leads me to theorize that this is part of the reason why people use things like Lido's because that's basically the only easy way for an end user to stake their uh, coin. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any comments on that and if that maybe that decision at the architectural level is having kind of the opposite effect that they intended. Yeah, it's a great question. I think initially I was on, I was more in the camp of ETH not having an ability to automatically delegate stake from the protocol level would be a good thing encouraging users to stake themselves and would be ultimately a force to, to help decentralize stake more. Um, however, the popularity of Lido, I think, does does put that assumption into question. Um, I think that there's quite a number of protocol level decisions for staking that are still being built out on Ethereum that I think would service um, stake decentralization better than just native protocol level delegation. So one of them is distributed validator technology, and that's basically allowing users from the protocol level to be able to delegate their stake to not a single validator, but multiple different validators and basically break up the keys for staking in a decentralized fashion. Um, that's currently quite difficult to do on the network, but there are a number of projects working on it. Um, and I think those are the kinds of solutions that Ethereum is working towards because of the fear that just native protocol level um, delegation simply incentivizes too much um, centralization. And in that sense, I, I, I would agree that, you know, not going that full route was the right move, but obviously it gives question to, okay, well then does distributed validator tech um, and other protocol level decisions um, either increasing like the slashing risk of node operators that oh, operate a lot of validator entities, uh, these kinds of tweaks to the network, will those work out? Um, in the end. Fascinating discussion. Thanks for um, all your knowledge on this, Christine, and the great question, Saul. Um, all right, let's jump into the quick hits, just like we do every week. We've just got a couple here quickly. Um, Compound, the uh, decentralized lending protocol on Ethereum, actually one of the oldest, actually also the one that kind of kicked off the yield farming craze when they issued their comp token uh, in, in spring 2020 uh, that led to DeFi summer. So Compound, has apparently been rated a B minus credit rating by SNP. I didn't realize Standard and Poor's uh, was doing credit ratings for decentralized protocols. Credit rating agencies are so irrelevant. <laughs> this just reminds me of the meme. This has nothing to do with. This is not interesting at all. But there's like a meme when the stock went down, and someone posted like, "Oh, Standard and Poor's has the word poor for a reason." It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> 
It's yeah, what a development though. Um, we'll we'll see if we see the, uh, you know I don't know I don't know how this helps compound really or is useful, but um, or if they intend to use their credit in some way um, or even can as a decentralized protocol. Um, El Salvador, our favorite Central American country, uh, has apparently bought the Bitcoin dip. Um, Nayib Bukele, the president there, um, buying Bitcoin in the 30k range. Um, still, still clearly a believer. Um, uh, despite you know the market turmoil we're seeing, love to see it. Get stick to your guns. I'm not holding my breath yet on Bitcoin City. They're talking about, um, but uh, if they pull that off, it'll be something to see. I'm actually planning to go down and visit El Salvador soon. I'm really interested in what they've been doing there. Yeah. Okay. So Brazil, I guess sticking in the southern, uh, or I guess El, El Salvador is almost right at the equator, but it's sticking with the. Uh, Western Hemisphere and going further south, uh, Brazil's new bank uh, is adding support for Bitcoin and ETH. Um, this is interesting. I, I, I thought that uh, I read somewhere that Warren Buffett was an investor in new bank. Yeah, I think this is big because uh, Brazilians have always had this natural distrust of, of traditional banks. So they've resorted to these fintechs and yeah, it's the main onboarding mechanism into the financial um, services for, for a lot of these Brazilians. And lastly, Napster, um, which I know well. Uh, this was my era. We were in middle school. I was one of the first people that had broadband. Um, the file sharing, the music MP3 sharing, really probably popularizing literally the .mp3 format. Napster, um, still around apparently, um, has been acquired by Hivemind and Algorand. Um, Hivemind, the, I think the fund, a, a newish, um, but very large crypto VC fund, um, and Algorand, the, you know, um, layer one blockchain, I think founded by Silvio McCauley, um, in Boston. Um, I guess they've bought Napster or bought the IP or, or something for Napster. I assume this is, uh, some kind of, you know, web three, uh, music play. Well, yeah, it reminds me instantly of like when they brought back or they're bringing back LimeWire to create like an NFT marketplace. It's, I guess that's the play. And also the play here is just take every major character from the social network and just invest in whatever they found. In. <laughs> My gosh, that's true. Um, <laughs> Lord, so you got the social network, you got the the Winklevoss twins obviously own Gemini, yep. um, a big cryptocurrency exchange based in New York. You've obviously got Mark Zuckerberg with the, renamed his company Meta yep. and and obviously wanted to make Libra. Yep. Wow. And now you've got um Sean, uh what's his uh name? I Sean Parker. Sean Parker, the Napster founder who who right was an early investor in Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. They're getting the third movie ready. <laughs> <laughs> we got to we got to go back and read that book. Um uh it's Ben Mesrick's book or watch the movie and and just see who else <laughs> hasn't yet come up with one that we can spot early. Um Wow. Okay. What a week. Um, busy week out there. Hope everyone has an excellent weekend. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. Um, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, Check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io slash research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.